From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Climate change and the unusual winter fire in Colorado that burned through suburbs. I think for me, talking about a winter wildfire, this is climate change in my face. You know, I do wonder, as a fire scientist, and I've talked about warming-related disasters before, how many do we need before we're proactive? Also, remembering biologist Tom Lovejoy and E.O. Wilson, specialized in the tiniest of creatures. Being in his lab with his students, seeing these just extensive colonies of ants all over his lab, he would just light up and get so excited talking about his ants and new big ideas. He was just like a little kid in a candy shop. He was just so over-the-top excited, and it was infectious. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Nearly 60 million homes in the U.S. sit less than a mile from a wildfire zone, but most people are unaware of the risk until it happens to them or people in their neighborhood. That risk was laid bare in the suburbs of Boulder, Colorado, on December 30th, when some 30,000 people had just minutes to evacuate as a wildfire ripped through their neighborhoods and torched close to 1,000 homes. Fire season in Colorado is typically during the hot, dry months of summer and early fall, with blazes most often in the forested wilderness. But 100-mile-an-hour winds drove the Marshall Fire in from grasslands. Big fires are increasing in the region thanks to a mega-drought linked to climate change. Fire expert Jennifer Balsh lives in Boulder County and directs the Earth Lab at the University of Colorado Boulder. Welcome to Living on Earth, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Well, first, how are you doing? It's been an exhausting and scary couple of days for us in Boulder and Louisville and Superior. You know, I have I have friends, colleagues who lost their homes, and being a fire scientist, it's it's one thing to study it, but it's another thing to be living through it. And this event started just a couple miles from my home, and I know that you know it could have been it could have been my home, it could have been my neighborhood. Um, we're living with the reality of being in the wildland urban interface where homes mingle with flammable vegetation. And this is our reality. To what extent did you ever think this could happen to you living there in Colorado? You know, I think about it quite a lot, given this is the work that I do and I I study fires for a living. It's definitely a risk we're, we're taking on. I think one of the surprises with the fire that happened just in the last couple of days is that the this wildland urban interface is way bigger than we thought it was. Um, there are a lot of homes at risk, and I've done some of that work to show what the extent of risk is. We know that in the last couple of decades, there were a million homes within wildfire boundaries. There were another 59 million that were within a kilometer of those wildfires. You know, I think we just haven't been acknowledging the high level of risk that we're living with today. And that risk is made worse by climate change. And that's a big part of the story as well. And by the way, what do you mean by wildfire boundary? I mean the the extent of the perimeter of, of wildfires. So we looked at essentially all the, the wildfires that happened over the last two decades, and we have maps of them and, and their extent, essentially the outer limits of where those fires burned to. And so within those burned areas, there were a million homes that were touched in some way, um, not necessarily burned to the ground, but were within the boundary of those areas. And did I hear correctly that, that there may be, what, 59, 60 million homes that are very close to such boundaries? That's right. So another, you know, a million were within the perimeter of fires and the burned landscapes, but another 59 million were not that far away within a kilometer. How did we get here? Oh, it's such a good question. You know, Colorado is, is a beautiful state, but it's also a very flammable state. Because it's a beautiful landscape, there's a lot of people who want to live here, and we continue to develop into flammable places without really thinking about what risk we're taking on. And I think there's a lot of room for us to do it better, to build better and to build more fire-resilient homes and neighborhoods into our flammable but beautiful landscapes. So 
As I understand it, Colorado was abnormally warm this winter. Why is that? And in your view, what influence does the climate and weather have on the the gravity of what happened in the Marshall Fire? Yeah, it's a huge factor, and fire is a great integrator. You need three ingredients for a wildfire to happen. You need it to be warm, you need fuels to burn, and you need an ignition or spark. And leading up to December, the end of December, when this event started on December 30th, we had the warmest June through December period on record for the Front Range going back to the 1960s. So what that did was it essentially made our fuels very dry and crispy and and essentially ready to ignite. So it was a huge factor that played into what happened. And the fact that I'm even talking to you and talking about winter wildfires is somewhat remarkable. And there's only been one other time in my career where I've talked about snow putting out wildfires. Uh, That's this year and last year. And so what we're seeing is consistent with a trend in warming that we know is influencing wildfires and making them more frequent and making them bigger. We've seen a two degree Fahrenheit increase across the West over the last century. We know that it takes just a little bit of warming to lead to a lot more burning. We've seen a doubling of the forests that have burned across the West since the 1980s. Let me ask you to put on your academic hat for a moment. What's the role of fire in the Earth system overall? I mean, more specifically, how does fire contribute to what's going on with climate warming? And and how does this climate warming promote fire? So what fire does is it's essentially fast respiration. It, It takes all that carbon that's stored in plants and it pumps it back into the atmosphere. Combustion is the reverse equation of photosynthesis, essentially. So what you have happening very quickly is that carbon goes right back into the atmosphere through combustion. So fire itself has an important feedback to the atmosphere and and to warming itself if that fire is out of whack with what the historical rate of returns have been and what the historical rate of reaccumulation of that carbon in ecosystems. So how fair is it to infer from what you said that with more and more wildfires, it's going to add to more and more climate disruption, more and more climatic warming. It will, particularly if you get vegetation change or transitions to other type of vegetation. So if we go from some forest systems to grassland systems that are more adapted to frequent fire, we're going to see a loss of carbon storage by those trees and those forest systems. And that is definitely a potential. And we're seeing some early signs of transitions in that Across the West, we have forests that are not recovering or not regenerating because little seedlings, the trees that come in after a fire, are not surviving from year to year in the drought conditions that we're experiencing today. Now, we had a a very, we're in the midst of a very strong drought, despite the fact that we got this snowfall. And it's, it's a mega drought. It's essentially more than 20-year period where we've had a lack of moisture contributing to it being very hard for plants to survive, particularly ones that need a little bit more water, like trees. Jennifer, I have to ask you about the summer fire season. I mean, what do winter fires mean for the, well, historically, the more prominent summer fire seasons that we see in the West? So to me, what this means, seeing a winter fire means that we have a, a fire season that's not a season anymore. It's an all-year thing. And, you know, that's going to stress out our firefighters, our fire suppression teams, you know, our communities, knowing that we're going to have to be aware of how dry it is throughout the year. And for the moisture conditions, we're not out of the deficit, the moisture deficit yet. We had a very good snowfall that followed that windstorm that propelled that fire forward. We got anywhere from five to 10 inches along the front range, but usually this area sees about 30 inches of snowfall by this period of time. So I'm hoping we're going to see more moisture in the next several weeks and months. And if we don't, what that means is we're going to have an early fire season again next summer, which sets us up for more burning and greater risk to communities. 
So what and where are some of the most vulnerable communities in the United States now to wildfires? You know, which ones are, are most at risk? And what, if anything, can be done? I think, importantly, we need to figure out who's most vulnerable. There's 13 million socially vulnerable Americans right now living with high wildfire risk. And I would guess that that many of them don't know that they're living with that risk. You know, I think part of what is a lesson from the Marshall Fire is that the wildland-urban interface where homes are at risk is way bigger than we thought it was. And we need to help communities prepare and recover from these types of events. And there are things, there are important factors that play into whether a community is ready, whether it's a low-income community, whether it has resources to do the fuel mitigation around neighborhoods and around homes. Age makes a difference. Elderly communities who may not be as mobile or have as many resources are also vulnerable and need greater assistance in times of evacuation. We also need to be concerned about those with pre-existing health conditions like asthma that make them vulnerable to smoke and smoke exposures. So there's a lot that we need to be working on and thinking about and helping communities and those whose lungs are in the way and whose homes are in the way, we need to better protect people. In your view, what could have been done to prevent the Marshall Fire there in Boulder County? I think... Under those wind conditions, that fire was going to be pushed. I think, you know, let's start with where it started. Um, that ignition start is still under investigation and that cause is still under investigation. But I can guarantee you that it was human related. There is no natural lightning at this time of year. So one thing we can do is to try and reduce the accidental ignitions that come from people. The other piece of this that we can tackle is making homes more fire resilient and building better. And then the last thing we can do that is the hardest, but we need to tackle is reducing the amount of greenhouse gases we're pushing into the atmosphere that are warming our planet and contributing to this problem. You know, in that we are all culpable. So you're both a scientist and a human who has been right next to this disaster. How do you feel? Yeah, it's hard. It's definitely hard. I have staff and friends and colleagues who've lost homes who are literally sifting through the ashes right now. And it's one thing to study it and it's one thing to to face it. And, you know, I think for me, talking about a winter wildfire, this is, to me, this is climate change in my face. And I hope that that message gets across because I think we need to do something about it. And, you know, I do wonder as a fire scientist, and I've talked about warming related disasters before, how many do we need before we're proactive? And I think the science community and our communities generally need to shift gears to solutions that are going to help us become more climate resilient. Jennifer Balsh is director of the Earth Lab at the University of Colorado Boulder and a fire scientist. Thanks so much for taking time with us, Jennifer, and best wishes for a speedy recovery for your community there. Thank you. And we're Colorado strong. We're going to build back. I just want us to build back smarter. Coming up after the break, the Center for Biological Diversity is taking the Biden administration to court to protect polar bears from Arctic drilling. But first, this note on emerging science from Don Lyman. Weighing over 2,000 pounds with large tusks and heavy skulls, walruses are a formidable Arctic mammal. But research now suggests that polar bears may have found a way to kill the massive pinnipeds. For centuries, Inuit hunters in Greenland and the eastern Canadian Arctic have told stories about polar bears dropping large stones or blocks of ice onto walruses. Explorers and naturalists often dismiss these stories as myths. But the persistence of such stories, along with photos of a polar bear at a Japanese zoo using tools to obtain suspended meat, compelled biologists to investigate. 
Researchers reviewed historical and recent observations reported by Inuit hunters and non-Inuit researchers. They also looked at documented observations of polar bears and brown bears using tools in captivity to access food. The researchers concluded that tool use in wild polar bears, though infrequent, does occur in the case of hunting walruses. Tool use by animals to solve problems is generally regarded as a sign of higher intelligence, but studies on the cognitive abilities of polar bears are lacking. However, scientists say that a great deal of observational information suggests polar bears are very smart. Polar bears feed mainly on seals, which they hunt by looking for the seals' breathing holes on sea ice. But climate change is melting Arctic sea ice, so some scientists think that hungry polar bears may increasingly attack walruses for food. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Don Lyman. If you like listening to Living on Earth, please join us by telling people you know to tune in to our podcast. And if you can, please send us a donation. $5 or more makes a difference. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. Thanks. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia, for our customary look beyond the headlines is Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News, SEHN.org, and DailyClimate.org. Hi there, Peter. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Steve. And we've got some news about polar bears. Among other things, polar bears uh, have become perhaps the enduring symbol of what climate change can do, is doing to the Arctic. Just before Christmas, the Center for Biological Diversity announced a federal lawsuit against the Interior Department over a massive oil and gas exploration project within the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the North Slope of Alaska. Well, that petroleum reserve is right next to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and is almost as big and has many of the species that are protected next door there. And currently it's free from oil and gas development. That's right. The Peregrine Exploration Program would be a five-year, almost year-round oil and gas effort to see whether there is extractable oil and gas in a portion of the reserve The Trump administration okayed the exploration. Biden's Interior Department would have to okay the permanent oil and gas drilling there. But if it happened, it's hard to see that there wouldn't be the same kind of sizable damage that we've fought over in the Arctic National Wildlife drilling proposals for the last 40 years. Of course, one of the concerns even about exploration is that it involves building snow and ice roads and airstrips uh, in areas where the permafrost itself, if it's disturbed, could become a a source of of methane and other gases for for climate disruption. That's right. And uh, noise pollution from all of that industrial activity is going to add to the burden of an area that's so far been pristine. And of course, the big question is, do we really need all this oil at a time of the climate emergency? So maybe this lawsuit to protect the polar bears is really designed to protect us. There's a 60-day comment period on the potential filing of the suit. Once that comment period ends in a couple of months, keep you posted on what happens with the proposal to drill in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Okay, Peter. Well, tell me, what else do you have for us today? A little good news if you're concerned about plastic pollution in the world after climate change. It's uh, arguably the biggest worry for the environment and growing very quickly. But France has banned the use of plastics in packaging most fruit and vegetables. The ban uh, came into effect the first of the year. Under the new rules, everything from onions, carrots, tomatoes, potatoes, apples, pears, and about 30 other produce items can no longer be sold wrapped in plastic. Instead, they should be wrapped at all in recyclable materials. Well, that'll be helpful because plastic pollution, as you say, is a major threat, uh, not just in the ocean, but to human health when it's used to wrap food because of chemicals that some food wrappings can contain. That's right. And um, foot in the door in France, so to speak, is hoped to be the first step for all of the EU nations to take 
in the effort to curb plastic pollution. Wouldn't it be nice if the United States thought the same way? Wouldn't it be nice? Hey, Peter, take a look back in the history books. Tell me what you see. Back to 1955, the first week of the year, in his State of the Union address, President Eisenhower proposed the interstate highway system, which somewhat ironically was based on what Ike saw in World War II when Hitler guided the creation of the Autobahn system in uh, Germany, not primarily seen as a way for Germans to zip across the country in leisure, but a way for German armaments and soldiers to zip across the country in World War II. Ike wanted the same kind of mobility for the United States at a time when we were in the middle of the Cold War with Russia. So 65 years later, they're still building parts of the interstate system, Peter, right? Uh, That's right. And the um, interstate system, parts of it that are 65 years old or close to it, are falling apart, which is a part of the infrastructure effort now underway in Washington. Thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News at CHN.org and DailyClimate.org. We'll talk again real soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website. That's LOE.org. The world lost several notable people in the waning days of 2021, including two leading naturalists who died just a day apart at the end of December. Edward, or E.O. Wilson, and Tom Lovejoy were pioneers in the field of conservation biology. And as they documented the steep declines in life on this planet, they also gave clarion calls to protect it. Harvard professor E.O. Wilson specialized in the tiniest of creatures and was nicknamed Ant-Man, but his work on biodiversity took a planet-sized view of the extinction crisis. Uh, I like to call it one Earth, one experiment. We only got one shot at this. Let's be careful. In 2017, I sat down with E.O. Wilson at his home in Lexington, Massachusetts, to discuss the big idea behind his book, Half Earth, Our Planet's Fight for Life. What we need to do is try for a moonshot. And the moonshot is to set aside half the surface of the land and half the surface of the sea as a reserve, a reserve that isn't, doesn't exclude people by any means. Indigenous people are, in fact, encouraged to enjoy them and continue their way of life. But if we could give half of the earth primarily to the millions of other species that inhabit the earth with us, then we would be able to save about 80 to 90 percent of the species, bring the extinction level down to what it was before the coming of humanity. That would be a successful moonshot. That bold plan has inspired roughly 70 countries to commit to protecting at least 30 percent of their land and oceans by 2030 as a first step. Jane Lubchenco is a marine ecologist and Oregon State University distinguished professor who is currently serving as deputy director for climate and environment in the White House. She worked with both E.O. Wilson and Tom Lovejoy over five decades and joins me now to help remember their work. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Jane. Hey, Steve. It's so great to be here. It's so great to talk with you now again. Now, each of these men were giants in the fields of conservation biology in their own right. And we'll talk about Tom Lovejoy's work uh, on forests and climate change in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about E.O. Wilson. What do you think were his most important contributions? Oh, my gosh. He made so many, it's hard to know where to start. Ed was a consummate naturalist. He was just a keen observer of the natural world. Obviously, ants were his passion and his lifelong love throughout his career. But he was able to build on those observations and create really innovative breakthroughs in multiple areas. For example, he really pioneered new ideas about how ants communicate with one another. So breakthroughs in ant biology, ant pheromones, was one really big contribution. Another was what is called the theory of island biogeography, which really focuses on what are the guiding principles behind the number of species that you find 
on islands or in fragments of habitat. That was a theory that was both created mathematically with Robert MacArthur and then tested experimentally with one of Ed's graduate students, Dan Simberloff. And that theory of island biogeography has really formed the foundation of modern conservation biology. It enabled people to think about where do we want conservation parcels to be, how big should they be, how should they be connected to one another, etc. Ed also, though, was a pioneer in creating new ideas about how people connect to nature and how nature influences people. And he created this concept of biophilia, which suggests that humans have an innate connection to nature. They're drawn to nature. All of this was, you know, many, many different contributions that he made, but again, grounded in very detailed, keen observations, but resulting in some grand theories and grand vision. Yeah, Ed Wilson was really amazing and actually helped me in my work, Jane. I mean, obviously covering the whole question of conservation and ecology, but as he laid out his biophilia hypothesis to me that we evolve with all these other creatures and there are things in our genes, or maybe we talk about epigenetics these days, I came to understand media. What do I mean? I came to understand that we evolved for many thousands of years not knowing the images or sounds of other people that we actually hadn't been with. And that I began to understand why so many people would treat people as almost members of their family that they didn't know because they'd seen them on television or heard them on the radio or something. It's how certain, frankly, politicians got elected from Fred Thompson to Ronald Reagan. It is how if I, I said to you, isn't it a shame what happened to Tom and Nicole? You might know who I'm talking about right? And it gave me a better understanding of how it is is that we use images and voices in media, and I'm really grateful to Ed uh, for that insight. You know, Steve, he, he really had a similar influence on many, many people. He was so adept at being able to explain something, but to do it in a way that would then trigger new thoughts on the part of the person he was interacting with. He was a very gifted teacher for that reason. You know, he would stimulate ideas and encourage others to sort of take them on to the next level and and make them relevant to their lives. So tell me, just share with us a moment that you remember from working with, with Ed Wilson. I know there are many, but what comes to mind? I was a graduate student at Harvard in the 70s and then an assistant professor. And It was a time when there was a lot of tension in the Department of Biology because molecular biology was really on the rise. And many of the leaders of molecular and cellular biology, but Jim Watson in particular, were very arrogant about ecology, evolution, systematics, and really dismissed that field as just a bunch of stamp collectors. And you know, being dismissed and marginalized to some, and it was to Ed, was very powerful motivation to show that, in fact, the science of ecology, of evolution, were actually legitimate in their own right, and not yesterday's science, but tomorrow's science. And in the interim, we've seen a coming together of those threads in ways that is very exciting and appropriate. But at the time, there was this real tension. And Ed was bearing the brunt of much of this within the department. But being in his lab with his students, seeing these just extensive colonies of ants all over his lab, he would just light up and get so excited talking about his ants. And he would start talking about new big ideas. And the graduate students, the other folks who were in the room, it was just palpable excitement that provided a really powerful antidote to a lot of the tension that was in the department more broadly. So just his excitement, his enthusiasm. Uh, he, was, he was just like a little kid in a candy shop. He was just <laughs> so over-the-top excited, and it was infectious. It was. And, uh, you know, Harvard wasn't very generous to E.O. Wilson to begin with. They didn't really want to give him tenure. And they thought that they were sticking him over in the museum with his aunts. But, you know, all through the years, he kept his office in the museum. And if you went by to see him, he'd show you the leaf cutters. He'd 
did those kind of ads. He'd get all excited. What a gift. And I, you know, I think he kept the excitement right up to the end. So what do you make of his notion of half earth? How does that compare with the notion of, you know, conserving 30% of the biosphere by say 2030? Ed was a big thinker, and he didn't do things halfway. But when he did them, they were solidly grounded in evidence, in good science. And through the years and his extensive travels, he really became quite concerned about the sixth mass extinction event of biodiversity, the first one in the whole history of Earth that was being caused by people. And he saw firsthand the numbers, but also the devastation in many different habitats. And he became very, very concerned about the future of the planet, the future of people, in part because we were losing so many species. And this led him to appreciate the importance of protected areas. And he developed this concept of protecting half of the planet for nature, an idea that many dismissed as completely impossible because at the time there was maybe 3% of the ocean that was fully protected and maybe 17% of the land. So the idea of 50% was just mind-boggling and still is to many. Nonetheless, he became a staunch champion, very eloquent in his speaking and his writing, focusing on the importance of saving nature, not only for its own sake, but also for our sake. And that concept has gained uh, a lot of support from colleagues and others. The fact that many countries are focused on 30% is quite remarkable, actually. It you know, remains to be seen how effective that protection is. It, it really is important. What type of protection? You know, something that is fully protected is really, really different from something that's only lightly or marginally protected. So the devil is in the details with respect to the execution. Nonetheless, his idea was a bold challenge and an inspiration to many people. So E.O. Wilson was a giant, certainly in this field of biological diversity. And Oh, by the way, he happened to have a couple of Pulitzer Prizes for his nonfiction writing about ants and, and, and things. And he will be talked about for many generations. Coming up after the break, we'll continue our chat with Jane Lubchenco and talk about another conservation giant we lost last year, Tom Lovejoy. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Support also comes from Friends of Smeagol the Seagull and Smeagol's Guide to Wildlife. It's all about the wildlife right next door to you. That's Smeagol. S-M-E-A-G-U-L-L, SmeagolGuide.org. Our sponsor, Climate Talks, is a new podcast from Meta and hosted by journalist Sophia Lee. It's a show that is changing the conversation on sustainability and the climate crisis. The podcast asks the question, what even is sustainability? And Paloma, that's something we've been talking about recently. Yeah, Ainsley, sustainability makes life not just better for yourself, but for everyone around you, and for everyone still to come. When I think about living sustainably, I try to avoid single-use plastics as much as possible, and I'm always sure to reuse and recycle. And I've really scaled back my meat consumption and try to eat more local. The climate crisis can feel overwhelming, but conversations like these help us realize just how much we can all do. Climate Talks encourages us to have our own climate talks with everyone in our communities. The show teaches us how to be a climate optimist, someone who's a realist, but who still has hope about the future of our planet. Climate Talks. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Like E.O. Wilson, biologist Tom Lovejoy dedicated his career to not only studying life, but also communicating the biodiversity crisis to the public. 
He spoke with Living on Earth back in 2010 about a growing awareness of this emergency and U.N. efforts to deal with it. Let's share a clip from that interview. I think what's driving it today is a greater sense of urgency uh, than before because people can see a lot of this biodiversity beginning to slip away. That finally makes you focus and spend less time negotiating and more time thinking about how to actually protect the biology of the planet and indeed the human future. Tom Lovejoy's work focused on tropical rainforests, and he was famous for showing the amazing diversity of life in the Amazon, as well as telling about it. Over the years, he hosted politicians, including Vice President Al Gore and celebrities such as Olivia Newton-John, at Camp 41, a research station deep in the Amazon where people slept in hammocks to reduce the odds of scorpions creeping into their sleeping bags. Around the station, there were creatures and plants never before recorded by science in the global north. And when I visited Camp 41 in 2002 and got to see a scientist document a previously unrecorded potu, that's a species of bird, I too went from seeing biodiversity as just an intellectual construct to feeling it as real and exciting. We've been talking about the legacies of Tom Lovejoy and E.O. Wilson with biologist Jane Lubchenco, who currently serves as Deputy Director of Climate and Environment in the White House. Jane, how did Tom Lovejoy shape our understanding of the importance of keeping this vital ecosystem intact? Tom first went to the Amazon as a graduate student, and he was focused on birds. And according to him, he just really fell in love with the whole rainforest. And at the time, there was increasing logging that was happening in the Amazon. And he quickly appreciated what potential threat that was to the health of the rainforest ecosystems, not only to the birds that he cared about, but to the mammals and the insects and the trees, uh, etc. And he was inspired, in fact, by the work that Ed Wilson and Robert MacArthur and Dan Simberloff had done on island biogeography. And he started thinking about how does the size of the parcel that remains in the rainforest after logging happens affect the biodiversity. And at the time, there was a raging controversy in the conservation world. It was called the SLOSS debate, S-L-O-S-S. And it stood for single, large, or several small parcels. And the question was, if you are in a position of creating habitat for biodiversity, is it better to have one single large parcel, let's say 10 acres, just for the sake of argument, or 10 smaller one-acre parcels? And there were arguments on either side having to do with, well, if it's a single parcel, wildfire or disease might wipe out the whole thing. If it's divided up into smaller ones, then at least some of them could persist versus the idea that some of the very large, very mobile critters, let's say a panther, for example, might need a very, very large habitat. And so you would lose those big charismatic species if you had only small parcels. So there was a debate and Tom said, let's test this idea. This is the scientific approach. And so he worked with colleagues in Brazil, worked with uh, landowners and the government and created this experiment that is still ongoing today. And it was created in the late 70s, I think maybe 79. And the experiment was essentially to create parcels that were 1, 10, or 100 hectares, and then follow them through time and see how the biodiversity changed in those parcels. Those experiments have given us a huge amount of information about how size of the parcel affects the type of species that are there and the health of the whole system. And in fact, there is no doubt that larger parcels are better. And so that early experiment of Tom's has yielded a huge amount of information that is guiding conservation action today. So Tom Lovejoy was also well-known for, for telling the story of the Amazon and biological diversity. And he attracted a swarm of politicians and celebrities who would either visit him in the Amazon or just pay attention to what he was doing in saying, what was Tom's skill there? How was it that he was able to, 
to bring these types of, of folks to the story of biological diversity and why we needed to, to hang on to it. Tom was a gifted communicator, but he was also a connector. And he understood people. He understood what would be of interest to someone. And he would very carefully make an argument to someone about why they should be interested in the Amazon or biodiversity or birds or whatever it was. So part of Tom's legacy is this gift that he had for sharing the excitement, enthusiasm, and passion that he had for nature with others and in training them in this vision of respecting nature, protecting nature, living with nature. And he understood how important it was to do that with local people. Much of the work that he did in the Amazon was with Brazilian students, Brazilian scientists, Brazilian politicians also went to Camp 41. And so it was not a nature versus people thing. It was very holistic. And the same was it was true, you know, Ed also appreciated the importance of of working with people. But Tom in particular really took that home and made it real. And now there are many, many young Brazilian scientists that are spectacular in part because they sort of got their start with Tom. So Jane, if you could pick one memory from working with Tom Lovejoy, what would come to mind? <laughs> I spent a lot of time with Tom in a lot of different venues, but I think his home that he called Drover's Rest in McLean, Virginia, was a very special place. He often would have dinners there, fantastic food, great wine. His wine cellar was uh, quite extensive, and people knew that Tom was quite the enophile. But he would gather unusual groups of people together and have these engaging conversations. Always a fire in the wintertime, fire going in the fireplace, and this old cabin that just had a lot of character. And Tom was such a, a gifted host. Everybody would be comfortable, but he had given a lot of thought to the people he was introducing to one another. So it wasn't just the same group. Oftentimes when I would be there, it would be everybody was new to me, or I might know only one other person. And so he was always matchmaking and always with the idea of stimulating conversation that would be intriguing, interesting, we could learn from one another but also result in some higher purpose focused on conservation, on nature, on big ideas, on getting something done. So you never felt like you were being manipulated. It was always a very natural, very engaging enjoyment. And anybody who went to Drover's Rest would always say yes the next time because it was such a very special experience. It was. It was like, in fact, being inside a... Uh... It reminded me of, of, of an old sailing ship, a big old sailing <laughs> ship, that being inside that cabin that I was somehow in the captain's quarters in some big old ship with the big timbers there. And Tom always cracking a joke, not over the top, but just making light and having fun yep. with, I don't know how many bow ties the man owned, but I'm not sure I saw the same one twice. He and, had a lot of bow ties. And that was always very special because my dad was a bow tie guy too. The first time I saw Tom, I think I liked him just because he was wearing a bow tie. <laughs> so how do you think Ed Wilson and Tom Lovejoy's work should be remembered? Well, both were gifted scientists. They took very different paths. Ed was uh, an academic who did just one discovery after another after another. And then he came around to appreciating the biodiversity crisis and being a leader in saving biodiversity. Tom took a very different path. He was more a scientific advisor, a scientific communicator, an instigator of new conservation-oriented things. So different paths, but they ended up very much in the same place of being champions for biodiversity and eloquent communicators through their writing, through their speaking, to motivate people to care about nature and to help be part of the solution. Their legacy lives on in our hearts, in our minds, 
and we need to do justice to their legacy by taking up the mantle of what they were working on. It's time for all of us to come together. Jane Lubchenco is a marine scientist and former president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, among many honors, and she currently serves as the deputy director for climate and environment in the Biden White House. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Steve, it's just my pleasure. Thank you so much. Within the same 48-hour period at the end of December that famed biologists Tom Lovejoy and E.O. Wilson died, Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa also passed away. Archbishop Tutu will be remembered as a leading nonviolent opponent to South Africa's rigid system of racial segregation known as apartheid and as a leading proponent of human rights. He was also an outspoken advocate of environmental protection and justice. Here's an excerpt of his call to action on the climate emergency as nations gathered in Copenhagen in 2009. The whole world stands faced with a common threat of climate change. This global threat already affects us all, in particular the poorest and the most vulnerable. That alone should move all governments to act. But my heart is heavy when I imagine the devastation that will face our children and our children's children if we do not act now to stop it. The final measure of a generation's courage is the memory of what they have done. We must live in memory as the generation that pulled humanity back from the brink of catastrophic climate change. Droughts, floods, and water shortages are already on the increase because of climate change. Science has spoken on the urgent need to tackle the challenge. Now it is time to listen to our consciences. There is a clear moral imperative to tackle the causes of of global warming. We're part of nature, yet we alone can act. Our destiny must be as guardians of the earth, not users and abusers of the only home we have. We all have a responsibility to learn how to live and develop sustainably in a world of finite resources. We must make peace with this planet. The late Archbishop Desmond Tutu in a message to the Copenhagen UN Climate Summit in 2009. Biological diversity is everywhere on our planet, so as an example, now that winter has settled in over the Northern Hemisphere, we turn to Living on Earth's explorer-in-residence, Mark Seth Lender. Here's Mark's description of elk passing the winter in Colorado's Great Sand Dunes National Park. The lake is black. The creek comes to an end there in one deep gulp. On the far side, the curve of the lakeshore is high, rising in a cliff. Beneath that cliff, a cluster of shapes detaches from the sand and rock and gravel. Elk. Browns and tans how small they seem, and even smaller when considered against what looms above, so large they appear closer than they are the great sand dunes, yellowish-red as the sun sets, violet in the approaching dark. 
In the dark the land grows spare and wide, the eye, the pulse, the mind adopt the presence of absence. One of the elk shambles over to the edge and drinks, the others wait. Then, on the move, at first slowly, faster, galloping. The hooves on hard ground, the leaping, loping run, and the clods of earth tossed head high. Creosote bush and sage part in the rush of them. They speed westward, chasing the last light into obscurity. Morning is its own impossibility. Snow, thick as plaster, the creek, the cliff, the lake, erased. A creamy layer swirled to the contours of the dunes, as if what lies beneath is not earth but cake. It's true, proved by the progression of seasons, and just as much by the passage of a single day, the only permanence is change. That's Living on Earth's Explorer-in-Residence, Mark Seth Lender. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Jenny Doring, Mark Kausch, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Teresa Shee, and Yolanda Omari. And we say goodbye this week to our interns Genevieve Santilli and Gabrielle Ert. Thanks so much for your hard work and good cheer. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can also ask your smart speaker to play Living on Earth Podcast. We tweet from at Living on Earth and like us, please, on our Facebook page. And you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.